as I'm sure you all know, or become aware recently <laughs> at least, Loos and Hoffman were diametrically opposed in their architectural and design philosophies. Loos in particular railed against Hoffman's holistically designed interiors with their heavy use of ornament. In 1912, Loos published what is now one of his most famous manifestos, Crime and Ornament. <laughs> it pretty well sums it up at that point. I suspect he's probably turning in his grave at this moment, having his work displayed and celebrated in the same room as Hoffman's. <laughs> and having his name in the same title with Hoffman as well as the exhibition. Loos believed that only by getting rid of extraneous ornament would a truly modern way of living emerge. And he was particularly critical of Hoffman's use of the notion of the Gesamtkunstwerk, or the, the totally um, designed interior that prescribed everything from the ceiling to the floor and to the, right down to the slippers that his clients should wear. And, and it, we do, it, it, legend has it, perhaps it is legend, but that, that, that Hoffman did in fact pay unannounced visits to his clients to check that they were in fact <laughs> wearing their slippers. However, in putting this talk together uh, and looking at these apartments more closely, I actually became aware of a number of details that one could suggest are common to both of these apartments. And it made me wonder whether or not we are possibly seeing influences of Loos on Hoffman. Maybe, maybe not. Um, I don't necessarily have a view on that. Uh, it's possible. I think one detail in particular in, in Joseph Hoffman's apartment, which I was only became aware of in the last couple of days, is, is incredibly um, Loosian, if you like. Um, the others, as we come to them, we can talk about them, but may or may not be Loos influenced, possibly their English influence, if you like, that pervaded both of their, um, both of their artistic uh, philosophy, uh, sorry, ar architectural and, and design philosophies to some extent. Two paths to modernism. Despite being quite late in the exhibition, this section forms a crucial moment in the thesis of the show. It is, in effect, where we pause and consider where all this stylistic fervour and development is going, from the emergence of, of the secession in 1897 um, to the establishment of the Wiener Werkstätte six years later in 1903, and looking at the various phases of this artistic development in the Wiener Werkstätte, albeit, of course, essentially driven by Hoffmann himself, to when we arrive at this point in the exhibition where we ask to consider two paths toward modernism, represented, as I said, by Josef Hoffmann and Adolf Loos. I think the question does need to be asked, though, are we, in fact, on a stylistic trajectory towards modernism when we look at these two um, architects' um, approaches? Do these two architects and designers represent two different but possible streams towards a modern ideal? In this uh, presentation, I'd like to look at this question, and in doing so, I'd like to take you more deeply into the aesthetic sense of what these apartments looked like to try and better appreciate the design philosophies of these two architects. And as we look at the Gala apartment interiors, I'd also like to briefly consider the notion of the Gesamtkunstwerk that we use so readily and so often, if you like, in relation to aspects of this show and also in relation to Hoffman's work in the Gala apartment and to consider whether or not it is appropriate to apply this term to Hoffman's gallery apartment. So to begin with Adolf Loos's apartment of 1903, 
10 years, which was built 10 years earlier than the gallery apartment. This is the building um, that the, the apartment is in. It is on, on up here and takes up the first five windows um, of this side of the building. The building was designed, in fact, by Otto Wagner in 1884, and which, is, which is also very interesting because it's still a very historicising building at this point. There's still very much an architectural hierarchy as one goes up the building, whereas, as you might have noticed when you looked at the Maolica House in Matthew's presentation, it was very homogenous. Um, homogenous. There was no um, hierarchy in the in the uh, architecture. But here we still have um, a historicising building from uh, Otto Wagner. I'll just show you um, some of the selection of the works again. If you haven't seen the exhibition yet, the sideboard, which links into wall panelling, and in fact we have another panel in the collection as well of wall panelling. It doesn't actually fit either end of this, so it was obviously on another wall in this room. So one can imagine that the room, the, the dining room, in fact, was was wall was was panelled all around with this mahogany wall panelling, and the clock on the end, of course, which almost disappears into the panelling. It's very modular. The um, Room divider, um, both views of the room divider, again very modular. But interestingly, these two these two chairs, the one on the right, of course, being imit imitative of Thomas Chippendale, the great furniture designer of the second half of the 18th century in England. And we'll look look at this further when we look at other Loos interiors. Um, how much Loos uses historical furniture, and particularly English furniture. It's very much an English aesthetic that he is employing in his interiors, and one sees that also in the use of the wood panelling as well, and other aspects. And then these um, bedside um, uh, cabinets um, from, the, from the bedroom. We have a burn, we ha these are not on display, but we have several pieces of furniture from the bedroom of the Langer apartment, which you'll notice are in a different type of wood. This is maple. The living, dining room um, are all in mahogany. But again, very modular. This is the Haberfeld apartment, Loess's apartment of 1899, four years earlier, uh, four years earlier, yes, than the, than the Langer apartment. Note the bedside table here. And this sideboard, you know, it must be the direct model upon which the, the, Loess, um, the Langer sideboard is, um, is modelled upon. And then also... Uh, um, on the image on the right, the desk, the study, if you like, um, which is very similar to the to the desk from the Loos apartment, and this Thebes stool, a Liberty Thebes stool, which was also um, used. Uh, Loos also placed one in the Langer apartment as well. So here again, you see just the connections. I think I think this is particularly fascinating. There's no doubt of of um, the, um, the the basis upon which Loos designed the Langer sideboard. Um, noticeably, though, these panels are vertical here, and he's turned them horizontally in this, in the in the Langer version. And the Langer version has um, candlesticks across here um, that are, that are not on this one. And this this I put in because it's it's the apartment of Jacob Langer's brother Leopold Langer, which was designed two years earlier in 1901. And was undoubtedly, we don't actually know, and I'm only completely surmising, but one assumes that, that it was the fact that his brother patronised uh, Loos, that, that, that Melanie and Jakob Langer also patronised. 
uh, Loos, but that's pure speculation. We really don't actually know a great deal, if you like, about the background of either the Langers or their, you know, their interest in Loos or, and, and the apartment itself. I should have said actually up front that there, there are actually no surviving images of the, the Langer, as that is the Jacob Langer apartment, um, unfortunately. So hence why I'm showing you other images um, of other apartments around the period, uh, which I think must undoubtedly give us a pretty strong indication of what the Melanie and Jacob Lang apartment, apartment must have looked like. But you can see how, historic, how historical it is, effectively. It's, it's a very uh, interesting mix of, of a certain modern aesthetic to a degree, but, 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 but heavily historical as well in the, in the use of the, the historical furniture uh, all the way around and, and the panelling. This wall, it's hard to tell. It's either very, very highly lacquered wood or potentially marble. And this view is the other view of the room, the other end of the room from the other, taken from the other side. Um, which clearly has wood panelling around this side of it. And I just ask you to note that this extraordinary lampshade light fitting as well, which I want to look at a little bit later as well. This is fascinating. This is the Kuna apartment, 1907. Um, you note this use of this, the ingle nook, um, which was a, very, was a very common feature, if you like, in Losa's interiors in general. Um, here he uses, of course, the room divider, which is presumably how the NGV's room divider would have been used at the same time, in the same way, um, to create intimate settings. Um, oops, sorry. And note, this is, I was particularly interested to see these chairs in this apartment, which are exactly the same chairs that he's used subsequently in, in the Melanie and Jakob Langer apartment. And, and a point, this is the point to be made here, that Lowe's had no problem with using historical furniture if he considered it good design, which he clearly did. Um, and, and English furniture in particular, he, he obviously warmed to enormously. Um, he, he, he worked on the principle that good design is good design. And just because it's 100 years old, what does that matter? Why would you not still use it if it's comfortable? And he apparently is um, purported to have have said that the Chippendale um, chairs were some of the most comfortable chairs he'd ever sat in, not that this one's Chippendale, but he used a lot of Chippendale-style furniture in his interiors. And, and, and it's rather refreshing in that sense that, that he you know, had no problem with using commercially produced and historical, historically influenced furniture if he, if, you know, if he felt it was appropriate for, for the client, if the client presumably wanted it, because Loos was about... Um, providing interiors for, their, for his clients to be comfortable in. Um, it wasn't about prescribing a certain look that, and a certain sort of constriction, if you like, that, that people had to accept, you know, if they used him as, as an architect. He worked for them in that sense to provide what they wanted. And I think this, one, this room in particular is, 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 is fascinating. And note, just out of interest, the little etching here by Emil Orlik of um, Gustav Mahler, which was also in the Galia apartment, in fact, and is in the exhibition. And this, I think, is fascinating too. Hugo and Lily Steiner's house of 1910. It's seven years later than the uh, Jakob Langer apartment. Um, but I, I think undoubtedly this must, you know, the Langer apartment must have been something extremely similar to this. Um, one can't tell, of course, with the proportions of the rooms. Well, I, one could, I suppose, if you went to see the apartment today. But, um, but I, have, I haven't been there. I don't know how much it's been remodelled in, internally. But here you have 
um, Chippendale-inspired chairs um, like we had in the Langer apartment. You have wood panelling and you have the sideboard here, um, essentially, well, and one there as well, you know, of very similar aesthetic to the one in the Langer apartment. And I think this, this room in, in particular must give us a very good sense of, um, of what the Langer apartment must have looked like. Interesting to note the ceiling treatment. And this is a very common treatment that Lowe's uses in his apartments. This um, painting, and one presumes it's inserted in the sense that it's a, it's a, a decorative aesthetic that he, he did wish to introduce. Decorative, he might have perhaps disputed that term, but it's a, it's a certain aesthetic detail that he has certainly, I think, introduced um, into his apartments because it's so common. Um, and would, I, one wouldn't normally see open exposed beam ceilings in, in buildings, of, uh, certainly in, a, in an Otto Wagner building of 1884. Um, although, of course, this is a completely commissioned um, house, so obviously it's a, very, it's a totally Lucian effect. Um, it's, in one sense, it's, it's very Japanese and, and, oh, and English, undoubtedly, of course. And Lowe's actually, he didn't go to Japan, but he spent three years in the 1890s in America and was very taken and very influenced by um, Frank Lloyd Wright. And of course, Frank Lloyd Wright, heavily influenced by Japanese design and architecture, and one can't help wondering if that is filtering through um, into Lowe's design aesthetic here. But it's undoubtedly also a very English aesthetic, of course. And this is the exterior. I just put this in more from an architectural point of view, the exterior of the, St the Steiner's house, which is one of, um, of the most um, modern, if you like, constructions of its day at the time and is, and is always cited as, you know, one of the most um, radically modernistic uh, designs of its time and clearly signalling a very clear path towards a, a modernist aesthetic. And you can, you can undoubtedly see where... Le Corbusier, uh, the, the great French architect, is coming from, and Mies van der Rohe as well. And I just put this in, more out of interest than anything. We're now at 1930, another Loos um, apartment interior. But oh, but you note this, the, that he's still using very, very traditional historical English furniture, the Windsor chair, which dates back centuries, do you know, 16th, 17th century. Um, it's, a, it's an iconic um, English chair. And Loos is still employing it in his interiors in 1930. Though I think one can also appreciate that this interior has become more stripped back and reduced um, and become more, if you like, box-like in a way and simple in its construction. But I think it's also interesting just to note this use of the marble surround um, architrave around this doorway as well, which something, is something that comes we see in the Langer apartment as well. Okay. I think that there is no doubt that Adolf Loos's architectural and design philosophies head firmly down the path of what we now broadly term modernism. Loos was able to successfully combine a restrained, pared-back aesthetic with bourgeois comfort. This winning combination allowed his clients to live in unrestrained comfort with a degree of historical familiarity, but also with a sense that they were, also, that they were of course, moving with the times and being fashionable and avant-garde at the same time. The question here, though, in our two paths to modernism section, is whether we also regard Hoffman as heading down a parallel path towards a modern aesthetic. Do we see elements of modern design in his Gallery apartment? Okay, so I'm going to have a further look at some of the aspects of um, the Gallery apartment. Oh, sorry, we're still in Los. This is um, his house, of, uh, show house of 1912. Again, you can see where Le Corbusier is coming from. 
and then of course this you know utterly utterly modernist reduced um, restrained house of 1927 of, of the Moller house there's no question where Los is heading but here we are now the exterior of the Moritz and Hermina Galia's um, apartment at number four Vollebengasse in the fourth, fashionable fourth district of Vienna, designed, as I said, 10 years later than Lohse's apartment. This exterior was actually built in 1912 by Franz von Krauss. Um, uh, Moritz Galia bought the block and, and he pulled down the existing apartment building on it and then commissioned uh, Franz von Krauss to build um, this building with the intention, of course, to uh, have, oh, have his family apartment um, on the, the Prima Piatti, if you like, the first floor, um, and then the rest of the apartments above would eventually be used by his children. Okay. Just a layout of the, the five principal rooms, and that's important to bear in mind here that we're not looking at the whole apartment. We're only looking at the five rooms that Moritz and Hermina Galia commissioned Josef Hoffman to design. And they were public rooms in that sense, rooms for entertaining. They were rooms, of course, the family lived in and used, but they were the rooms that the, that the public, um, that their friends and, and, and other you know, people would, 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 would see and visit. There, of course, is another half to this apartment, which was their bedrooms, the kitchen, the back room, the bathroom, all of those rooms, which we, have, we don't know. <coughs> Excuse me. So you enter into, <coughs> excuse me, we come up the stairs, um, there was an elevator as well into the hall, which was the most central room of course and opened into all four surrounding rooms. The dining room, which was the most formal room and only used for entertaining with um, guests. The so-called smoking room or um, Moritz's study, but it was also used as a family living room by the family. And this is the street along this side, um, hence the, the bay windows at either end. The smoking room which comes through to the salon or the music room, the room for entertainment with public entertaining. And they often, the, the Galias had deep interests in music at the time and, and often held soirees and, uh, in, their, in their apartment, obviously, which would have been held in the salon. And then Hermina's boudoir, which runs the length um, of the apartment and with, with bay windows at either end. Um, and this was where Permina would have entertained her, her um, female friends during the day. <coughs> right, I better keep moving. The dining room, okay. And bear in mind as we're looking at these interiors at the colour schemes um, that, um, that we're looking at throughout, throughout these rooms because they're all completely individual. And that's when I'm, I want you to think about this notion of the Gesamtkunstwerk. Do, well, we'll ask the, I'll ask the question now. Do we think, you know, if one can apply this notion at all to, get to the Hoffman apartment, uh, is it the entire five rooms? Is this the Gesamtkunstwerk, the total work of art? Or is it better to consider each room as an individual Gesamtkunstwerk? I think my sense is, uh, I don't have any answers to this at all, but um, my sense is that each room is, is, if you're going to apply this notion, and I think one can to a degree, but it's, it's more on an individual basis of each room rather than as a complete whole, because the whole apartment is not designed by Josef Hoffman. 
So the dining room, which, as I said, is the most formal room. Um, and here we have on the left um, a very recent acquisition that we were really thrilled to make. Um, one of the chairs that you see here from the dining room. It's the only piece of furniture that we have now in the collection from the dining room. Previous to this, we didn't have any furniture. Most of the furniture was left in the apartment um, at the time that, that the children moved out of the apartment, so when it was rented out. We have the carpet, of course, um, from, the, from the dining room, which you see here. And you can see, in terms of the colour scheme of this room, it's clearly, it's clearly very heavy and it's quite brown. It's hard to tell whether the furniture was really ebonised or whether it was dark brown stained, <coughs> as you see here on the chair. <coughs> it's very difficult. We can't say, really, to be honest. It looks black in the photograph, but the, f the chair, although it's worn, there's no black to be seen, really. It is a dark brown staining. Um, and it's the, the whole um, room is clad in this marble dado, which we believe to have been black marble, of course, heavily veined, white veining, but otherwise black. So a very, very heavy room. Note the vase of flowers in the, in the middle of the table here. And, and a detail of that here. And then here are the vases um, from the garlic collection still. Um, it, they're obviously a, a garniture. Um, although I haven't seen this vase in any of the photographs at all. It must have been in the apartment, but it doesn't feature in any of the photographs. And now uh, we're in um, the smoking room or uh, um, Moritz's study when you see these vases again here, um, both of them in here. And very interestingly, to ta in, when in taking these photographs, they've obviously moved the vase in the dining room. It's, it's, um, it's come into, you know, <laughs> it's the same flowers <laughs> that's, that's now come into the smoking room to just dress the room a bit more. Again, a very heavy room. I mean, it's, you know, heavily ornamented in, in every possible way. Um, you'll recognise the bookcase that's in the exhibition, but it doesn't look so monumental here at all. It looks extraordinary. It's massive in the exhibition because it's on a white wall and it's just shown in solitary splendour. Um, here, it's in the context of this room and, it, and it's, it's fitted very snugly into the end of this wall and it's got, uh, you know, an extraordinarily busy wall textile behind it and it, it just fits, doesn't it? And you don't, you don't think of a massive bookcase. It's a bookcase, basically. Um, and then the carpet is, is grey with a black um, design over it. We don't know the colour of the chairs, the textile on the chairs, and we don't, again, know the colour of this textile on the walls. It's also on the, as a cloth on the table. So it's hard to get a sense of this colour scheme in this room, um, but it's, it's, it's a very strong colour scheme, no doubt. Um, and, and the furniture, of course, also has that very heavy... Uh, masculinity about it, if you like. It is, you know, it's, it's the Herrenzimmer, the, the, you know, the man's room, effectively. And this is Moritz's desk here, and this was his inkstand here, which you'll also see in the exhibition as well. Um, and then note... Oh, I'll just go into the next detail. I'm just looking at the two vases again here. Um, it's interesting just to note, we don't have the desk uh, at all, um, but to note this decorative detail on the desk that is repeated um, down um, the bookcase. I think uh, one, there's one element of one could, one could pick out of this room that does suggest a, a degree of a modernist aesthetic, if you like, and that is the, this, this paned window, um, windows of the, of the bookcase. I mean, it's also a very historical aesthetic as well, so it's debatable, but one could argue that there's this, this um, grid work effect going on here, potentially, maybe not. And then the salon. Um, 
the music room here and you see the big Steinway grand piano, which they shipped out to Australia just by the by, the children. Um, just to look at the details. Okay, we'll just go back. Note these chairs here and, and this, this occasional table and a second one here as well. And then here is, here is the chair. We, we know of, there are two chairs now from, of this suite of six um, from the gallery collections um, still surviving. Um, this is, oh gosh, this is what it looks like today. This is the occasional table with this wonderful veined marble panel inset and just a detail of that wonderful carving across the top. It's interesting to note that this furniture is not ebonised. It's, um, it's varnished. It's the natural wood surface. We're not sure at this moment what, what type of wood it is. It has a slight look of oak about it, but we don't think it's oak. It's possibly a fruit wood. And very interestingly, very recently, literally in the last um, few weeks, we have uh, we had the opportunity to remove the current upholstery to a degree, partially off one of the chairs, and you see the ex the, the original textile is still there underneath. Thank goodness, they had when they recovered the chair, they had the foresight to leave the original underneath. So you see that it was it was a black textile, and you see, of course, the detail above of the seats, and you see that we know what the we know what the braid was around it and what the pattern was, so it will be possible to replicate the braid going around these seats. So that was a really exciting discovery to find out. So it's interesting. These chairs oops, are black. Um, they were originally black, very, very smart, um, with, with the natural um, varnished wood. And then uh, okay, then we see them again here. Um, this, this is actually, this is not the salon room. This is one of the rooms of the, of the children's apartment. Um, this, one of the daughters, Keta, when they moved out of the apartment, they had their own apartments and they, they divided up the furniture amongst the children. And so this is Keta's apartment. And so she, she got one of these occasional tables with these chairs that you see. And just note this cupboard behind as well. Okay, so... Um, the salon again, and just a detail here then of this marble surround here at this end here, which is around a heating grill, but you have to then project that onto the other side of the wall, um, which presumably had a marble surround as well on flanking the doors, but inside that marble surround were these cupboards, that cupboard that I just pointed out in Keta's apartment. And these are they um, today, they're actually joined up against each other. There's two cupboards here. They are square cupboards, utterly simple, utterly restrained, and this is... Um, that little point I mentioned earlier that I think, you know, if there's any Locean influence in this apartment, then this surely is, um, is that. This is uh, the interior of one of the cabinets, uh, the cupboards today. They're clearly storage cupboards. Um, and this bank of drawers at the top. And look at this, this way that, that, that Hoffman uses this inset brass plate for the handle, um, a flush with the surface of the drawer. Um, these cupboards, it's, it's extraordinary to, to, to see these because they're so not Hoffman. They are utterly plain. There is not one element of decoration on them with the exception of the, the drawer handles, which, of course, you have to have somehow. It's, it's it, they were really um, a revelation to me to see them and see here, so com uh, just to, um, to compare the two, the sideboard of Lose on the left and the, um, the, the Hoffman um, cupboard on the right. We know that they are definitely Hoffman or, yes, Hoffman, because the keys... Um, we have the keys to the cupboards and they have Jay Sulek written across the top. Jay Sulek was the furniture manufacturer for virtually all of the furniture of the Gallery apartment. There's, a, there's no question that they're Hoffman. And then just looking at, sorry, the colour scheme, to get quick, go quickly, green carpet, this fantastic green carpet um, with these, these floral, pink floral motifs, the black chairs here, 
These were black as well, the sofa with the armchairs and this floral motif on them was allegedly white. The walls, we don't know what the wall colour was, but it's quite a single muted colour. But they, this must have been an incredibly smart room with this fabulously green carpet and then, and then the black upholstered furniture with its natural varnished um, finish. And then the final room, Hermina's boudoir. You can just see the portrait of Hermina here, Klimt's portrait in the background there. Note the ingle nook here. Oh, God. Um, just here. Very interesting. And then you see the colour scheme here. It's completely different again. It's a Wedgwood blue um, on, in the carpet and also the wall textiles were Wedgwood blue with a little pink pinkish red flower motif and then this Chinese red um, uh, colour throughout um, the rest of the furniture. And just, again, comparing the use of the ingle nook here used uh, in, in Hoffman and then here in, in one of Lohse's in the show house. Um, but Lohse used it constantly throughout his interiors. Is this a Lohse influence or is it an English influence? Charles Rennie Mackintosh used an ingle nook also very, very um, frequently in his interiors. <coughs> and then the hall with this black ebonised furniture. The carpet was a moss, a pale moss green colour. We don't know the colour of this wall textile here. The, the, the wood painting is, is, is a pale, dirty grey colour. And then the black ebonised furniture, which is upholstered with red Moroccan leather, as is this tub chair here. <coughs> See the furniture. And interesting to compare again, the tub chair here in the hall, and then, oops, and then the tub chair, come on, in the um, Ternowski apartment of 1900, you know, both using English, English chairs. Um, but is, is it a Loos influence on, on Hoffman or is it just an English influence? Who knows? And the light fittings, just to point out, again, this light fitting from the Steiner house, I mean, they're, they're both wacky in that sense. Got to keep going, thanks. <laughs> okay. Okay, in terms of modernistic design being apparent, I have to admit that with the exception of a few details, I'm really struggling with Hoffman's uh, interpretation. We see numerous historical references, of course, neoclassicism in the fluted monumental ebonised furniture, Gothicism in details of the boudoir chairs, the use of parcel gilt finishes in the boudoir furniture, a very um, 18th century aesthetic, and heavy, intensely decorated interiors. But where is the modernism? It was there, of course, only a few years earlier, visible in Hoffman's interiors that he designed for, oh, for Karl Moll in 1903 that you see here. Moll's paintings show this clean, the clean blue and white modular furniture with square edges and crisps crisp white painted surfaces and Hoffman's use of large flat blocks of colour together with his use of the square grid patterning. Yet following those first few radical years of the Wiener Werkstätter, Hoffman headed off down an increasingly decorative path, essentially doing his own thing. To us, approaching his work from a 21st century perspective, Hoffman's work is intriguing, striking and impressive, but what is it saying? Where is it going? I think one has no choice but to conclude, and I don't actually, I don't mean this in any critical sense at all, but one has to conclude that Hoffman's aesthetic is effectively heading down an artistic cul-de-sac. So what do we make of two paths to modernism? What are we looking at in this part of the show? It is clear that Hoffman's work ultimately forms the precursor to a modern aesthetic. Uh, sorry, that Loos's work ultimately forms the precursor to a modern aesthetic, and that Hoffman's work is perhaps better understood as a style. However, the fact that people now had a choice as to how their interiors were designed and consequently how they were able to live their lives, now that was modern choice. 
The Langer and Gallia apartments represent the beginnings of the lifestyle age, that you could choose your bespoke interior and the designer who suited your aesthetic to reflect your own place in society, your aspirations, your wealth, and you as an individual. It's a concept that we take for granted today, but in Vienna in the early years of the 20th century, it was utterly modern and progressive. Thank you.